Today, I'm going to talk about how feminism ruined my marriage (laughs) and how it might be ruining yours and what I think we can do about it. I'm going to share three mindsets that may have seeped in from the more negative side of the late feminist movement, the third and fourth waves. And I'm going to share how I think we might counterbalance these and how I think they might be harming our marriage, what we can think of instead. This is Hi Fam. I'm Avital. So I don't want to spend too long on the disclaimers here, but I think it goes without saying that there is so much to be grateful for in the first and second waves of feminism. I do believe that women deserve equal rights and equal opportunities, and I am grateful to the sister suffragettes who fought so that I could have those rights. But from then on, the movement becomes a little bit more complicated in the opinions and the types of beliefs that it begins to espouse with regards to marriage and motherhood in particular, but also to the workplace and to women's bodies and to all sorts of things. It becomes a bit more complicated to just simply say, yeah, I'm a feminist, right? There are lots of different opinions and ideas and beliefs that are wrapped up into the movement that go beyond simply equal rights for women. So when it comes to equal rights for women, I'm a feminist. But beyond that, I think we've got to be discerning. We've got to pick and choose the things that we do agree with and that we disagree with and notice how these ideas seep in through popular culture and become just kind of mainstays. They become default opinions. They become automatic views that even if you aren't brought up in a particularly radical home, even if you haven't been particularly uh, embedded and entrenched in the ideology of feminism and in its various kind of sister ideologies, um, they might have seeped into your mind and they might be shaping your individual relationships with the men in your life in particular. And that's something that I want to discuss today. And I'll just bring myself as an example uh, and share the ways that I think feminism actually ruined my marriage or brought ruin to my marriage and how I had to kind of catch those ways of thinking and re-educate myself so that I could think differently um, about the particular individuals and relationships in my life. So, Before we dive into the three mindsets uh, that I think I kind of got from feminism and from pop culture in that world of feminism, and I'm using that term rather broadly, obviously, there's a lot of different streams of feminism and a lot of different ideas. You could fill whole libraries and people have done many PhDs on this, etc. I'm not going to go too highbrow or academic with this, um, but I'm going to share three mindsets that I do think have come from those trains of thought from that world of feminism, you could call it. Um, But before I do, I just want to note that there have there have been significant changing roles in our society over the past 50 years. So this is from the Pew Research Center who says, uh, women have reached near parity with men as a share of the workforce and have begun to outpace men in educational attainment. About six in 10 wives work today, nearly double the share in 1960. There's an unresolved tension in the public's response to these changes. So more than six in 10 people endorse the modern marriage in which the husband and wife both work and both take care of the household and the children. This is up from 48% in 1977. Even so, the public hasn't entirely discarded the traditional male breadwinner template for a marriage. About 60 about 67% of survey respondents say that in order to be ready for marriage, it's very important for a man to be able to support his family financially, whereas only 33% say the same about women. So we have, you know, kind of some 
more traditional opinions about men being the breadwinners, uh, men having the final financial responsibility for the family. But we also have a changing view uh, and a changing reality on the ground where many marriages are uh, more egalitarian, where both the man and the woman are uh, supporting the family financially. Um, and also both are sharing in the parenting and the caretaking and household roles. Um, and that's just speaking personally, what my marriage has been like, although I see some traditional marriages around me and I think both models can work really well and neither models are, um, are going to kind of protect you from these mindsets that I'm about to share. So I just want to say that upfront, what I'm about to share is about what goes on in your mind, what you're thinking about your husband, right? In this case, that's what I'm talking about. Me, what I was thinking about my husband, the mindsets that seeped into my mind that changed the way I viewed men in general and my husband in particular, maybe my sons, maybe my brothers, I don't know, right? It can really kind of spread out into many different areas and it's almost subconscious, right? It's almost, as I said, this autopilot way of thinking. But as I've become more and more educated on the subject and more and more self-aware, I have caught them and noticed them. And I find them, you know, in books and uh, all the gurus and experts and uh, a lot of pop culture, a lot of songs, uh, a lot of best-selling novels, that type of thing, uh, will actually be in support of these faulty, mythical mindsets that actually ruin marriages. But what it is not tied to is what your marriage looks like. In other words, it doesn't actually marry, matter very much if A, you are married at all or if you're in a partnership. It doesn't even matter if maybe it's a same-sex marriage. It might have the same type of mindsets applied here. And it doesn't matter if you're in a traditional marriage where the man is the breadwinner and the woman is the homemaker or if you're in an egalitarian marriage where you both work and you both parent and homemake. Because what this has actually seeped into is that level of mindset that is, as I say, not even fully conscious. So the first thing, the first mindset that I want to share with you today that I think uh, feminism has taught us, I know this sounds a little bit provocative or a little bit extreme, but I, I do think that's where it's come from. I think feminism has profoundly taught me, at least on a subconscious level, to suspect and disrespect men in general. And we see this with a general disregard for men as human beings, as complex creatures, as individuals, right? There's this type of caricature that's often painted of, of men. You might see this in Homer Simpson. Uh, you might see this in Papa Bear in the Bernstein Bears, although I kind of adore those books. But Papa Bear is always clumsy and useless and behind Mama Bear. Like he doesn't fully get it. He's not as wise as her. He's portrayed as another child. He throws tantrums too. He, you know, gets competitive too. He forgets things and is disorganized too, right? He's rarely portrayed as a leader, as someone wise, as someone responsible, mature, reliable. And those are the types of caricatures that have seeped into our pop culture. You'll see this in rom-coms. You'll see this in lots of different movies. You'll see how the father is um, kind of a burden or a little bit irrelevant, right? Um, there's this sense that women just don't need men, right? That we don't need them at all, that the world would be better without men. 
you see this in people espousing views like, oh, if women ran, ran the world, then the world would have no wars, then the world would have no problems, then everything would be kumbaya, right? You see this in that kind of girl power that's not just about girl power, but it's actually about disempowering men. And you see this in the suspicion of men, that there's somehow something about men that's primitive. They're Neanderthals, they're, they're um, animalistic, they're beastly. Um, they only want one thing, right? There's this, there are all these kind of mindsets that seep in and, and truisms and, and just culturally accepted, disrespectful ideas about men, right? And some of them, as many stereotypes are, might be based on some truth, right? Some statistical realities. Uh, you see this in the man cold, right? We women get very upset when people call us hysterical or say that we're PMSing, but we're perfectly happy doing the same to men and stereotypically uh, disregarding their their challenges like, oh, it's just a man cold, right? He's a man child. He's a man baby. There's this general sense that we just don't really need men. Like, yep, we need kind of a sperm donation and then we'll be done. We don't need men anymore because for the rest of it, women do it better, Right. There's the famous quote from Irina Dunn in the 1970s, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Which just summarizes perfectly the sense that we can just disrespect them and disregard them, that they're useless, they're un, uh, irrelevant, right? Unneeded, unnecessary, um, superfluous, almost like a mistake of nature, unevolved, uh, primitive, there's the Gloria Steinem quote that says, given the expectations of society at large, men are generally correct in their assumption that it is important for a woman to have a man. What they do not understand is how pathetically little difference it makes what man. And can you imagine if we made the reverse quote that yes, men need women. It just doesn't matter at all which woman because all women are interchangeable. Women are not individuals. They're just, you know, this kind of stencil, uh, a stand-in for uh, the form of a woman. And that's what Gloria Steinem is basically saying about men, that they're interchangeable, that they, we kind of just use, we can use and abuse them because we, we, we just don't need uh, them or respect them or cherish them as individuals. Their soul, uh, their humanness is very much degraded in these feminist writings. Gloria Steinem also wrote, women are always saying we can do anything that men can do, but men should be saying we can do anything that women can do, right? This kind of elevation and glorification of women, which is something I'm going to get to in my second point, um, but also a competitive, tit-for-tat, nasty, transactional idea that comes in. Who can do it better? Who gets, you know, more flack? Who gets more rights? Who gets uh, more pain and suffering? Who, uh, who gets paid more? All of these are part of the same odd um, competitive vibe that often comes through with the feminist movement. Rather than seeking simply just equal rights for women, it goes far beyond and starts this kind of very, I think, toxic competition between men and women, trying to say that women are better. Uh, it's this kind of gynocentric way of looking at the world, that women should rule the world. Men should be looking at women and saying, we can do anything that women can do. It's like, how about we just all appreciate each other and notice our wonderful complementary differences 
uh, and also our similarities, which are much greater than our differences, uh, rather than doubling down and continuing to agitate this uh, battle of the sexes. What we've seen in recent years is also the the diving in and the doubling down on toxic masculinity, which is in and of itself a toxic concept. I mean, what even is toxic masculinity? It's to me the same as saying toxic femininity. Sure, everything in the world, you can look at its dark sides and its light sides, right? Its shadow and its light and say, well, it has positives and it has negatives. On the whole, as a group, men have you know, their challenges and their drawbacks and their negatives, and they have their positives. Very odd that we as a society are choosing to focus on masculinity as a toxic concept in general, right? Because toxic masculinity is not usually used just to describe uh, those tendencies of men that are unhealthy or negative or abusive or terrible or whatever, but rather to describe men as a whole, men in general. Just being masculine is now considered toxic. Uh, Just having those classical masculine traits, um, just being a man is a problem in and of itself. And as a result, many men are kind of opting out of being considered men at all, uh, or certainly opting out of embodying those classical masculine traits, which I think is a crying shame and ultimately not what women want or need and certainly not great for our kids, right? I think that it's great for us as a society to have masculine men who are protective, who are providers, uh, who take on leadership roles, who take responsibility, right? I think that at least in my home and in my community, these are the pillars of my community, right? Uh, Stand up men who I have nothing but respect for. Um, And it's just so odd to me that I think feminism has really pushed this agenda of toxic masculinity and pushed us to suspect men, right? Uh, You see this with the kind of believe all women um, idea, right? It's really, why should we believe all women any more than we should believe all men, right? There are women who lie. There are men who lie. Uh, there are women who are who tell the truth and there are men who tell the truth. It's very odd to make these kind of divisions by gender, right? Believe all women versus toxic masculinity. Really, I think, really bad idea. But I think worse, this ruins our marriages. This seeps into our minds and we start to view our men with a profound disrespect for their humanity, for their individuality, for the preciousness and sacredness of them as humans, their souls, right? We start to see them as men. And men, as I've said, they're they're primitive, they're clueless, they're animalistic, uh, they're one-track-minded, rather than seeing them as the layered, complex, valuable individuals that they are and the very complementary differences that they can bring to us and to our marriages. So I I bring all of this to you because I want to encourage you to be suspicious of this mindset, to be aware of it, right? I kind of want to train your eyes to pick it up when you hear these ideas in a podcast, in a movie, in a memoir, uh, in in a book, wherever you're hearing them, Notice them and reject them. Reject the idea that you you should suspect and disrespect your man or the men in your life. Life is better when we respect each other as individuals, uh, when we don't walk around with just underlying, uh, unfounded suspicions, when we revert back to the principle of guilty is something that you have to prove, right? Innocent until proven guilty, rather than the often feminist idea of 
guilty until proven innocent, which is a terrible way to view men. No, not all men are predators. Not all men are violent or aggressive. They may be typically on average more assertive. They may be typically on average uh, more aggressive. Uh, they may be responsible for the vast majority of violent crimes. All of that is true on the edges, yes. But uh, that doesn't mean we should suspect our individual men in our life or make them out or push them into some kind of mindset where we're viewing them and labeling them as irrelevant, as unnecessary, or pathologizing them, which is another thing that I see a ton, right? Many of my clients come to me in distress in their marriages and I coach them and we work on it. And, uh, you know, thank goodness I've seen tremendous turnarounds and transformations within marriages where really a lot of the mindsets are just ruining the marriages. One of the mindsets is just pathologizing men in general, right? Either it's that toxic masculinity idea that all men are just a bit barbaric, or it could be a pathologizing idea that all men, for example, are narcissistic, right? How many of my clients and my students have come to me and said, you know what? I figured it out. My husband's a narcissist, right? And like, yeah, there are narcissists in the world. It's possible that your husband has a narcissistic personality disorder. You know, we, we can get that diagnosed and figure that out, but it's rare. And mostly it's born of a mindset that feminism has entrenched in us, which is this idea that men's needs are babyish. Uh, they're like another child. Uh, they're irrelevant. They're unfair. They're a chore. They're a burden, right? And it's uh, just a terrible, terrible foundation for a marriage and a relationship. When you already have set a foundation of disrespect, of disregard, of, of a basic kind of disillusion with them as, as human beings and as um good thinkers, as wise people, as people who are good, are good at their heart, at their soul, as a human, right? That that suspicion is a terrible and shaky and moldy foundation for a relationship. So take special note of that one. The second mindset that comes up in a rather big way in these feminist teachings and that ruined my marriage was that feminism teaches us women that we are the prize, right? It teaches us to feel entitled and special and that we should be made to feel special and that we should be treated like queens. Now, don't get me wrong. I would love to be treated like a queen, um, but I think that that is a two-way street, that that means I need to treat my husband like a king. And now I know you're all squirming in your seats because when we talk about women treating their men like kings, we're all a bit grossed out, like ick. But when we talk about men treating their women like queens, we're like, yes, queen, get it. That's good. And that's a little bit odd, right? That's so one-sided. It's all off kilter. It's all asymmetrical. And that doesn't actually ultimately work. When you come into a marriage expecting that you should get more, that you should be treated well, that you should have, uh, you know, uh, gifts bestowed upon you and compliments and unconditional love and, you know, massages and physical touch and patience and understanding and empathy and listening and all the great stuff that we all want, that's fine. You can have those expectations as long as they go along with what you're bringing to the marriage, right? What you're going to give, how you're going to show up, how you're going to be worthy of that kind of attention and love. Now, don't catch me on my word here. We're all worthy of 
basic respect and human dignity. But we're not all worthy of being treated incredibly by the people that we love if we treat them badly in return, right? There is a tit for tat in that sense, not that it's a transactional relationship and not that you should be measuring, but I am noticing that there is this general sense that just being a great wife is not a good aspiration. I shouldn't have to do anything. I shouldn't be any different than myself. I shouldn't have to edit myself. I should be allowed to have tantrums and to PMS like crazy and to yell at him and to call him names and to give him the cold shoulder and to demand things. I should be able to mistreat him. I should be able to talk trash about his family or to belittle him in front of friends, or to demand things of him. And with all of that, he should just take it all like a man and still treat me like the prize that I am simply because I'm a woman. And I don't think that works. That's not a very good strategy for building a long-term sustainable marriage. And that kind of thinking and that kind of behavior pattern that it brought out in me was quite ruinous to my marriage until I caught myself and realized just how entitled and one-sided I was being. I was expecting things of my husband that I wasn't bringing to the table myself. I was expecting him to show up in ways that I wasn't showing up, right? I just thought, well, I'm I'm the woman, I'm the prize. I'm just so great just because I'm here. I was born, right? And it's kind of reminiscent of the trophy generation where you just show up Uh, and get a trophy just for participating. And the participation trophy is, well, I'm married to you. So now you owe me for the rest of your life because, wow, you're so lucky to have me, right? I hear this echoed in pop culture, again, in the music, in all sorts of radio shows, in podcasts, where there's just this, what do you mean? I'm here. I should be treated a certain way. And The should thinking and the expectation and the entitlement is a little bit of a symptom of the generation that we're living in in the moment. And it's something that, I mean, I'm not going to argue with it on a philosophical level. Like, yeah, maybe I am the prize. Maybe I should be treated like a queen no matter what I do. Maybe philosophically that's true. On the ground, that does not work. On the ground, that is a losing strategy. On the ground, if you mistreat people, if you you know, call them names, if you raise your voice at them, if you hurt their feelings, if you uh, are disrespectful to them, if you treat them as suspicious, if you disregard them, if you trash their family, if you, um, you know, emasculate them, if you're controlling, if you're nagging, if you're nudging, uh, if you're a drag on their life, eventually they're not going to be treating you like a queen. Like that's just the reality on the ground. So it's just a losing strategy. And I think it's a really bad one. What goes along and is wrapped up and kind of fuels this strategy is the underlying idea that I deserve more than to be, say, a mother and wife, that that's just not enough, right? Now, this is not a commentary on whether or not you should have a career. I think if you want to and you can, you should have a career. If you don't want to or you can't, you don't have a career. It's not, this isn't a judgment call on that. I personally do have a career and I've had jobs before I had a business, but It is a commentary on the feminist idea that being a mother and a wife simply isn't ever enough. It's not satisfying enough. It's not good enough. It's lowly. It's an unfilled potential in the woman, right? Like Betty Friedan, who wrote in The Feminine Mystique, each suburban wife struggles with it alone. As she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, show-fed cub scouts and brownies, Laid beside her husband at night, she was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? (laughs) Right. And we see in this description of Betty Friedan how she's belittling 
uh, homemaking and child rearing. And that is what I take issue with here. I think women should have a choice. Um, I think, you know, there's, as I said, I don't make a judgment call on whether it's better to work outside the home, in the home, not work at all, work part-time. That's besides the point. But those women making the choice that being a mother or a wife or both is the main project of their lives should not be judged by the feminist movement as lesser than. That should never be seen as a missed potential, as if you've dumbed yourself down, as if you're unequal to others, as if you've, you know, betrayed your intellect or your capacity or your talents um, by caring for a family. No, I think that homemaking, um, I think that marriage and our relationships with our husbands, these are the most profound and important projects of our life. And I say that as someone who has a really fulfilling career. I love my job. I love my work. It means the world to me. I, I, I enjoy it. Um, it brings tremendous meaning to my life and it's been breadwinning for my family. And with all of that, my family and being a mother and a wife are the primary roles in my life. They're much more important. They take a lot more weight in my mind and in my heart than my work ever could, right? No matter what job I was doing. And I think that this is a, a bag of false goods that feminism has sold us that we would somehow get more meaning from a career. Most people don't have a career. Most people have a job. But even if you do have a career, and even if it's a really meaningful career where you get paid really, really well and you do really good work in the world with a huge impact, it's very rare for that to be able to fill the place or to compete with the amount and quality of meaning that you can derive from your closest relationships, particularly those with your husband and children. And so, yes, is this all? Yes, this is all. Yes. Yes. Working on building an incredible family culture is the epitome, is the peak, is the Everest. There are other things in life. It's not the only way to attain meaning. There are people without children who have meaningful lives. Yes, all of that is true. But is this all? Yeah, this is pretty much as good as it gets as a human. This is pretty much the peak of what you can hope to create as a human. This is pretty much what all of us are going to be thinking about on our deathbeds looking back. We're not going to be thinking, oh, I wish I worked more. We're going to be thinking, I wish I spent more time with the people I love. So yes, is this all Betty Friedan? My answer to that is, yep, this is all. This is the human peak of meaning. So what's wrong with that? Why should women shy away from that? Why should we feel entitled and special and like we deserve something more? Why would we embed in our mindset the feeling that this isn't enough, that building a healthy family life, that creating a loving home, that building legacy relationships and heirloom quality of connectedness and togetherness is not enough. What, what, what do you have to offer? You know, I'm asking feminism, like, what do you have to offer me that's better than that? And I, again, I say this as someone with a fulfilling career. What possible promise do you have on the outside that could fulfill me more than raising my children and having a passionate, romantic, deep, loving, intimate connection with my husband? Please lay it out for me. Show me the job. Show me the office. Show me the C-suite position. Show me the salary that could possibly compete with that. So yeah, we can go for those jobs. That's fine. But don't pretend for a second that 
our home life and that building meaningful ties and relationships at home is any less meaningful or any less important because that's just a bold-faced lie. And women know it's a lie. Women know it's a lie. But Betty Friedan, she doubles down. She says, women who adjust as housewives, who grow up wanting to be just a housewife, are in as much danger as the millions who walked to their own death in the concentration camps. They ate suffering a slow death of mind and spirit. I find that mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. My great-grandparents did walk to their death in the concentration camps. It's the most brutal and horrific reality to compare that to adjusting to our life as a housewife and to grow up wanting to be a housewife as if these two are... are, are, are I mean, one is has the potential to be the epitome of fulfillment and meaning and joy and love and connection and belonging to be a homemaker, to be a mother, to be a wife, which isn't to say you can't also have a career, but those aspects of your life, the home that you create, the relationships that you build with your children, these are the most intimate, special connections. These are the types of relationships that we would die for. To compare that, to be sent to a brutal, tragic, and early death. This is what feminism is offering us. It's it's ridiculous. It's worse than ridiculous, yeah? So we have to be incredibly suspicious of this mindset as well. No, being a housewife, being a homemaker is not some kind of cruel and unusual punishment. It's a privilege. It's something to be grateful for. It may not be for everyone. You may still want to work. You may need to work. You may get to work, whatever. I do, it's fine. That doesn't in any way diminish from the meaning and the joy and the immense, uh, really indescribable um, meaning and sometimes pleasure uh, and mostly just profound sense of purpose that one can derive from family life. And to describe it as anything else and to say, is this all like, oh, and women who strive for that are just so, you know, they're so trapped. They're so brainwashed. They're so, you know, used and abused. They've just never fulfilling their potential. They're, They're suffering. They're being led to their death in a concentration camp. These are really toxic mindsets. So no, we are not the prize. We are not entitled to some kind of special treatment. We should not feel special or more special than anyone else. There's no, you know, participation trophy just for getting married that now you deserve to be treated like a queen. We've got to show up and do this well. But also showing up and doing it well is not some kind of cruel and unusual punishment. It's a joy. It's a privilege. Yes, this is pretty much as good as it gets. This is pretty much what human beings can hope to strive for and to achieve in our life. I I don't know. Again, I'm waiting for the feminist to show me that job that could give me the same level of meaning and joy that I personally derive from my family. And finally, the last mindset that feminism taught me that kind of ruined my marriage for a time was that feminism taught me that marriage was disposable. That it was disposable. Now, there's some interesting research on how we view relationships and how they are actually shaped by our culture and how our culture treats items, physical items. So in a culture with a huge 
range of disposable items where we see things as disposable. Cups are disposable. Straws are disposable. Even things like shoes are relatively disposable in our culture, right? 50 years ago, you would take your shoes to the shoemaker. You would get them fixed. And today, you're more likely to throw them in the trash than you are to get them fixed. That speaks to a disposable culture, a culture where we don't expect things to last very long. We have instant gratification, and then we have a very short-lived life. We have planned obsolescence, right? Planned obsolescence, I think is the word actually. Okay, we have planned obsolescence, right? Where engineers are actually designing machines like toasters and dryers and even shoes to disintegrate very quickly, to stop working very quickly and to render themselves garbage really quickly. Things are not built to last in our physical lives, right? The industrial engineering and the industrial design of our current world and culture is not for sustainability. We expect things not to last very long. And that seeps into how we see relationships too. So I think it was really positive that feminism brought about the no-fault divorce, for example, right? I don't think people should have to prove why they're getting divorced, certainly not, you know, to members of the government. It's no one else's business why someone gets divorced. And I don't think people should be shamed for that in particular, right? That's not good. Like people should be allowed to get divorced when they want to get divorced and they don't need to explain it to us. But what's happened is not just the no-fault divorce, but rather the glamorization of divorce, right? Or the expectation of divorce, or the, the, the mindset that has seeped into the back of our minds that marriage is disposable. And I see this with so many of my students who come to me and say that in almost every argument that they have, divorce is on the table. In other words, if we disagree enough, at some point, I'm going to, you know, kind of bring out of my back pocket that card that says, okay, then I guess we're just not meant to be together. And that was definitely me for a time. In the beginning of my marriage, when we would argue, when things were tough, my immediate first thought was, okay, well, then I guess we're just not meant to be. Well, then I guess this is over. That was always on the tip of my tongue. That was always an option. It was like I had the suitcase ready. So I was never fully committed and fully in it and ready to, you know, double down and really go the distance because I had that door constantly open. And I know from pop culture right? From the people that we glamorize. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but Liz Gilbert's memoir, Eat, Love, Pray, Eat, Pray, Love, whatever it's called. uh, She was then played by Julia Roberts in a Hollywood movie, et cetera, right? This is glamorized. And the whole story is about how she left her husband and went on some, you know, journey of self-fulfillment by eating yummy food and sleeping with other men. and, And that's what wins prizes in our culture. That's what we uphold as the ideal in some very real senses. We applaud the bravery of that. And I realized at some point in my marriage that that's what was happening to me, that I was applauding the brave women who broke their marriages, who broke their families apart. Now, as I said, there are times when that's necessary. I don't think divorces shouldn't happen. I don't think that that no-fault divorce is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. But glamorization of divorce is not a good thing. And hiding and pretending that divorce doesn't have very real impacts on families and on kids and that it's not a sad thing. It's not a failure. It's not a tragedy, but rather making it a celebration, right? People have divorce parties and, you know, exciting reveals. And I I don't think that's a good mindset for us within our marriages. Because when it's always on the table that marriage can just be disposable, it kind of doubles 
the previous mindset that I spoke about. It makes me feel even more like a prize. Wait, the grass might be greener out there. Who knows what I could be getting out there? I'm a prize. If you don't treat me like a queen, then I'm out. And it teaches me even more to suspect and disrespect men. Like, I'm not fully committed to you like family, right? Like I am to my father, my brother, my son. You, I suspect. You, I can disrespect. You, I need to test all the time. I need to test your loyalty. I need to see if I really want to be in this because there's another option for me right behind the door. And that mindset is not good for a relationship. Relationships do not thrive with a constant threat of ending, right? That's, that's what's going to disintegrate a relationship really quickly. Marriage is not disposable. Marriage is not something that you just constantly reevaluate, right? I've, I heard a pitch this week that someone was saying we should renew our vows every year like a contract, a bit like a job. You just go over the contract again and you decide again if you want to opt in. And I'm thinking, my God, no. Marriage is not like a job. A job, you know, I believe in a free market. You can leave your job whenever you want. You give a bit of notice, you leave, you move on. I believe a marriage is like family. Like I said, like a father, like a son, like a brother. Someone that you work through your issues with. You don't just leave them every time it's hard. And that's, I think, a much healthier mindset. And for me, that has really saved my marriage when I learned to really look at it in this way. All of this is, by the way, why I've created Married You. I think we're deeply undereducated, misguided, misled when it comes to marriage and relationships. I think our culture has really sent us down the wrong path. And we see that. We see that in the declining marriage rates in general. We see that in, or I at least see it, in the hundreds of students uh, that come to me every month with marriage issues. And I just see it you know, in the water that we're drinking, in the culture that we're drinking. And I hope that I'm, through these podcasts, going to be training your eyes to pick up on it so that it doesn't infect your marriage with this kind of parasitical mindset that's going to really ruin your marriage as it did mine. And and, and instead, I'm going to help you uh, to immunize yourself and block these terrible ideas out. But I created Married You, which kind of stands for Married University, because we're not educated on this. We don't get the skills that one needs in order to create a lasting marriage. And I'd love for you to check it out. You can go to married-u.com and get more information there. And it's incredibly important to me because as a parenting coach, as someone who's on a mission to build strong families, I think so often these issues are actually kind of divorced from each other, like as if marriage and parenting are unrelated when in reality they're intricately related. They're interconnected. They're interdependent. One really doesn't thrive well without the other. If a marriage is suffering, the children are suffering. And that's something that we need as a culture to remedy. So check out married-u.com. And I'd really love to hear what your most helpful takeaways from today's podcast were. Were there things that tweaked you that you strongly disagreed with? Did you feel that I was too harsh at times or too soft at times? If this sparked an interesting conversation in your own head, make sure to share it with someone who you know and love who might find it interesting as well and use it to start a conversation of your own. I'll see you here, same time, same place next week. Meanwhile, keep on living that high fam life. <laughs>